0: The following podcast is made in partnership with Zinc VC. People of colour are the most severely impacted by hunger, poor food access, diet-related illness and other problems with the food system. The food justice movement works not only for access to healthy food for all, but also examines the structural roots of these disparities and works for racial and economic justice too. A food justice lens examines questions of access to healthy, nutritious, culturally appropriate food, as well as ownership and control of land, credit, knowledge, technology and other resources. Food production, what kind of food traditions are valued, how colonialism has affected the food system's development and more. Dee Woods is an award-winning cook, community food educator, urban agriculturalist, broadcaster and researcher with over 25 years of experience working in diverse communities. In 2016, she was awarded BBC Food and Farming Awards Cook of the Year. She is a visiting research associate at Coventry University, a member of the Greater London Authority London Board, the Community Food Growers Network and is co-founder of Granville Community Kitchen. She is also co-editor of A People's Food Policy and a member of Community Food Growers Network. Welcome, Dee.
1: Hi, Carla. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Oh, the pleasure is absolutely all mine. I was delighted to find your profile on LinkedIn and delve deeper into your work. Um, Many of our guests are driven to their kind of change-making work through their personal experience. And I'd love to just start today by talking about you and your life experiences, what do you think has driven you to be a warrior for change in the food justice space?
1: Where where do I start with that? Um, I think my own personal experience with household food insecurity and not being able to afford to buy food as a single parent and being disabled. And wanting to do something about that, um, observing other people and families and, and friends who were experiencing that and just being driven to do something about it collectively in, in the beginning. And then started peeling back the onion layers of food politics and realizing that. You know, hunger is a much deeper issue than, than I thought it was.
0: Can you tell us a bit about, if you wouldn't, and if you'd be comfortable, I guess, just sharing a story about how that food insecurity played up for you in your own life?
1: Um, so basically, I became disabled ooh, probably in about 2006. Um, following an accident and I was on disability benefits um, and then the government through their austerity measures um, invited me to an ATOS review and they decided that I was perfectly fit at that time to be able to work so I lost those benefits and i challenged that because at the time i definitely wasn't fit enough to to work and it meant i didn't have much money um you know i think it was less than 50 pounds a week or something um to raise two children on my own and you know by the time you pay bills and you know get things for your children and um, you know I was a home educating parent as well so it meant I had a lot more expenses than, than most parents and I simply couldn't afford food but for me coming from a very strong Caribbean background um, and a background where family and community support each other. I just I just couldn't t- go to a food bank. I said, I know too much about food and producing food and cooking to go to a food bank. And I'm sure there were other people in the community who um, felt similar and, and that's what we did. That's how Granville Community Kitchen started. It's
0: interesting when you said you knew too much about cooking. I'm taking that as an understanding that most of the goods that you would buy would be kind of packaged goods. And you're talking about cooking from scratch. Is that right? Or have I understood that Uh, wrong?
1: um, No, you've understood that right. So come from a farming background. um, Virtually the only things you would buy would be things like rice or flour. But everything else, you know, was produced at home or... On, on my dad's, um, horticultural plots. And I'm used to cooking from scratch. And even here in, in my garden at home, you know, I produce some of my own food. So I, I just couldn't buy tins or wanted to get tins or prepackaged foods because It was alien to me.
0: Interesting. I mean, I come from a marketing background and I remember reading an article which really struck me, which was that people don't buy cheese anymore. They buy Baby Bells. People don't buy yogurts anymore. They buy Yeo Valley. And I think that says a lot to the commercialization that food that we've ended up in. Um, Before we get into your journey, which I know we've just got so you've just got amazing projects to share about how you've driven change going back to your personal experience of and it's a very kind of vivid story in a way of imagining you going through this horrendous accident that that you had at work although actually when we spoke about it before it was it was kind of one of those i say horrendous it was uh, uh, we shouldn't joke but hey we can have humor in these things too i remember starting a job recently and there was a kind of health and safety uh, interview that we all we all go through right where it has you start a job and it says point out all of the hazards in the office and you say there's a spillage here there's a broom here but actually your yeah. accident was one of those uh safety um, at work issues uh, it,
1: it was it was a broom that was in the wrong place and fell and I tripped over it twisting my leg and falling on my knee you know we all laughed at at the time but it was the beginning of a long journey of pain and not being able to walk and learning to walk again and you know but it is a journey that brought me um firmly into this food justice and food sovereignty mm. world
0: so I'd love to pick up on those two words in a minute because you have such a great way of, of describing the, the wider issues but I think a comment I would make is we all feel quite affected by homelessness. I'm sure, you know, there's a very kind of visceral reaction when you walk past somebody on the street and there's, you know, many much said about how easy it is for us all to become disabled or for us to become homeless and it may feel quite far away or in fact for us to be able to or to become in a situation where we can't afford food for our families you know if me and my husband weren't able to afford food it could just be through a number of uh, incidents that could happen to anybody you know we lose our jobs or for example we have an accident and so I'd like to just talk about the fact that as a society My experience is there's somewhat of a kind of othering where people who are suffering from food insecurity, as you say, and, you know, again, this kind of broad term, which doesn't speak to the daily pain that people go through, is something that, of course, with the cost of living right now is becoming closer and closer as a possibility to many people But when you get to that experience that you're talking about, so you have become disabled, you have two children, and you're told you cannot have support. Why does that problem exist? Like, why are we abandoning people at that point? And what have you observed about that challenge that has led you to kind Mm. of do the work that you're doing?
1: Um, I think it is exactly what you said. It is that... It is that dumping or disposal of people who cannot fit into the wider um, productionist world. And the only value placed on us is our ability to contribute to this wider economic or capitalist world. And disabled people, children um, women and especially women who who care um, aren't seen as valuable in, in, in this this system All right so you know people think hunger or food insecurity is about food. it isn't about food. it's about poverty and poverty needs to exist for multi-billionaires and millionaires to exist. Someone has to be oppressed for the current economic system to feed the big corporations and people who make a lot of money. I mean, that's basic capitalism.
0: Mm.
1: So in terms of people going hungry here in terms of people having to use charitable food aid and food banks, you know, it has been designed. Someone made a policy somewhere that says um, you can't get child benefit if you have more than two, two children. Someone made a policy where they, you know, Sort of, especially if you're disabled or you can't work, you know, where you're punished. Literally, you are punished for not being able to do that. And that's what anti-poverty, that's what a lot of the food aid people Mm -hmm. are, are trying to get across. This isn't about food. All right? For people, they will spend their money everywhere else because they know they can get food somewhere. The humanity of people means we won't allow other people to go hungry. But that can't continue. Our government has a legal responsibility to ensure that everyone has an adequate amount of food to eat Our government has signed up to international treaties on the right to food. And right now they're violating all of those.
0: And who holds them to account to those treaties? Um, Is is it us? Is it the people? Or, I mean, is there someone above? I mean, who is this person that can come down on them and say, is it lawyers? Like who, who can...
1: In international human rights law... We can hold our government to account. But that's why there's this right to food movement that that's building. We need that in our national law so that we can hold them to account. But right now, all our human rights are being eroded mm. here in England specifically.
0: If I was to say food politics is, how would you complete that sentence?
1: Ah, food politics is the intersection of every aspect of our lives that is governed by food. Because food intersects with so many different things from transport to health um, to the environment. You know, politics around all those intersect with food. And I think that's why I have, my hands in so many different projects and areas because I just see and understand those connections. So you cannot talk about household food insecurity without talking about human rights. You cannot talk about household food insecurity without discussing economics, workers' rights, living incomes, living wages, um, welfare, you cannot talk about food without talking about our health and what is available, what isn't available, who gets access to fresh food, who doesn't get access to fresh food, and the type of farming that we have in the um, UK um, that is predominantly industrialised and the impacts on our environment and our health. So. That's what food, food politics is. For me, it's that web and that interconnection of all um, sort of policies that impact the way we eat.
0: You know, I, I felt like I was going to cry then listening to you because I just think it's, it's just amazing when I interview people on this podcast and it's just a real message of hope that there are these incredible, you know, warrior women out there like yourself, who is sitting in the middle of what is increasingly these, you know, ecosystems, right, where we're kind of looking around at how, as you say, this web is such a descriptive way of describing it. And if you pull one thread of that web, it pulls somewhere else, right, there's tensions and movement between them. But we are coming from when you talk about capitalism we've also got a situation where people are very because of the system they are working within sectors or within disciplines right so I work in policy or I work in transport there isn't necessarily a recruitment brief unless maybe if you are in government where you have and even then in government it's sort of transport secretary health secretary right and yeah exactly we we are living in these ecosystems, in these webs, and there are people who need to sit within those webs and have often a personal story, I guess, which just motivates them to keep going, because I can imagine the work you do just physically, given your condition, is incredibly taxing. So I just want to take a moment and just say... I don't know if anyone tells you this enough, but you're amazing and you literally are blowing my mind with this conversation. So thank you so much for everything that you you do. Um, You mentioned about the climate and I think it's such an interesting area to look at because obviously food insecurity is becoming less and less othered, right? Food insecurity is something that we are experiencing of all classes right now with the cost of living um, at at, a, at the tip of the iceberg. Obviously, um, not necessarily to the to the level that you were talking about, or that many people do. But you know, we it's often that feeling of like, okay, well, yes, we know there's poverty on our street, but it's a small proportion of people. Most people are doing okay, and I I I don't even need to ask you for you to come back to me and say that that that's not true but the the question that I want to ask is when we are now facing these kind of multiple interconnected challenges which all relate to the source of our food because of the climate how how does that make food justice does it take up the agenda are you hearing it talked about more because actually it's affecting more of the middle classes now, and therefore it's raising more of the conversation
1: around it. You hit nail right on, on the head. Of course, because the middle class are now impacted by sort of, you know, incomes that don't really match their ability to live. Um, well, we have working poor. And because we're, we're now feeling the impacts of climate change here in the minority world, or global north, Um, and that's impacting people's businesses uh, and livelihoods, that it has become an issue. But climate change has been impacting the majority world, global south, for well over 30 years. And I've seen the impacts on that, um, with my dad and his farming, and with so many other people I know and their farming, and most of our food still comes from the global south, and we we've ignored that, and we've ignored people who are are being oppressed. There's no other way to call it, um. We still live within a plantation system and that climate and the other interruptions or, or shocks um, to this global plantation system is making people wake up and sit up. Right? The England is not food secure. We never have been. We've always depended on food coming from elsewhere, and now we're seeing um, failures in crops there's drought right um, I think in US and Canada they've had you know failures in their wheat crops because of climate right right now Europe has unprecedented heat. I was in Rome two weeks ago and it was 40 degrees Celsius not even Caribbean gets that hot 40 degrees Celsius and there were fires everywhere and that is impacting on our our food system but this has been happening for 30 years our young people are, are scared but we need to find hope That we can change things.
0: Series two of the Warrior Women podcast is made in partnership with Zinc VC, a London-based venture capital firm. Zinc are currently looking for 70 talented individuals to participate in a 12-month venture programme aimed at transforming the sector's most impacting the environment. This is a real opportunity for impact driven individuals to access expert support and up to £250,000 in financial backing to build a venture from scratch. And brilliantly, over 50% of founders on their last venture builder were women. Go to zinc.vc for more information on how to apply. You know, you don't get invited to this podcast unless you are a beacon for hope and if you are a warrior for that change and it would be great if we could go on a bit of a journey with you to talk about from the moment when you moved into action for your own security i guess the moment when you started looking at okay well how long can i really rely on my my neighbors and when can i start driving change and how do i do that for more than just me and if you could just talk us through from there the the, the organization you started all the way to the big power rooms that you're sitting in right now and and the roles you're sitting in so
1: starting with granville community kitchen um 2 years prior I started a community food growing garden with a view of passing on skills and knowledge um, to young people and children. And then started Granville Community Kitchen um, later with a view of supporting people in household food insecurity, but also about becoming this hub Um, hub for change, hub for creating a different food system within that small part of Northwest London where poverty was endemic for well over 100 years and wanting to change that. And I guess I'm one of those people who once they get into something I just keep going until I get what I want um, and I don't give up. I mean, I've been laughed at um, going into spaces where I'm asking for land because I saw need for us to be farming at that time um, because food aid is not a solution. It's a stick and plaster solution. It's an emergency response. So we we needed to be farming in terms of building our own food security. And alongside that needed to be doing the advocacy to change the policies around um, poverty. So how do we ensure that people have enough money so that they can buy food? How do we ensure that there is actually a market or a shop where someone can actually buy fresh food? So, you know, it comes back to all those intersecting different things. And I just started getting deeper and deeper into it. Um, I don't have any tertiary qualifications per se, um, I went to university and dropped out um, before I graduated. And I have no experience in, in policy, in policy writing. I just went into it and found amazing people who supported me on that journey. And When I applied to be on the London Food Board, I didn't meet. Any of the um, sort of requirements, but I applied and I applied based on the fact that my work is grounded in the grassroots and that we can't continue to be doing top down policy making, that we needed to be doing participatory policy making. That means that people have a say in the policies that are going to impact their lives
0: i can hear without you even saying it that you have this solution right you know what we need to do already and i find that really pertinent about every worry woman that i speak to and i think the journey that i've been on the last few years is that i feel quite strongly that we the solutions are already out there in terms of the vis- you know the understanding of what we need to do is already there and there's a lot of narrative often about and I you know I have to say very much in the climate tech space now this kind of empire building of like oh we need to invest millions of pounds in this new technology to sort of solve this problem and to some extent and in some places those things are true but also there are solutions out there which just need people in power to just agree to them would you say that we aren't really searching for what we need to do. We're trying to lobby for people to do those things. Is that fair?
1: I think we're in a situation where we have solutions, but as people, as public, we don't have any power. Um, There's a lack of political will um, and a lack of investment in those real solutions. Um, Who has power are the... Corporations, big corporations, or, you know, what, what we refer to as big food and philanthro capitalists. They're the ones who have power and they're the ones who are encouraging our governments to spend money in the wrong places. Um, and that sort of agritech, that sort of climate tech that no one wants all right that can't be scaled across um, especially in a lot of countries already in debt all right there are solutions and we can't wait on governments Um, we can't wait on money so that's why you're getting you know more of this grassroots collective action in trying to solve things. We saw that with the pandemic because our government couldn't do what it needed to do. What we had was the mutual aids forming on the ground to ensure that that people were were eaten, to ensure that older people, especially older and disabled people, who were unable to come outside, to ensure that they were eaten. Mm -hmm. So many people fell through the nets. And if it wasn't for communities coming together, they wouldn't be here right now. So
0: we had a podcast launch event for Series 2 and it was at Zinc who are sponsoring the podcast. And I asked this question to all of our warrior women who were on the panel. And I will set this question up by saying rather so the question I asked them was you get 10 minutes in the House of Commons what do you say but I think the question I would love to ask you is you have you know the House of Commons plus all these philanthropists in front of you and they say to you you know all these things we're doing they're just not working actually And, and you know my wife now can't get any food so it's really affecting us now so actually we really want to do something about it Can you tell us what should we do? Where should we put this money? What would you say?
1: Well, I've been in those (laughs) spaces lots of times and have said this over and over again. We need money in our welfare system, right? We have a welfare system that is not fit for purpose. That is supposed to be a safety match and it isn't and so many people are falling through the nets. So one that that needs upgrading, updating, um, universal credit isn't working. Alright? You yeah, know, it's a failed it's a failed system. Two no recourse to public funds right so many of them people who are using food aid are people who have no ex- access to public funds and who also cannot work as a minimum right people should be allowed to work and and earn their own money and secondly women with children should be able to access all the child benefits Um, and that includes healthy start vouchers and free school meals and free school meals should should be universal Mm. for everyone from prime from preschool right through to secondary school um wages we need real living wages and i i spoke earlier about living incomes we need living incomes based on um real living wages but also real term social social protection, social welfare. And to go with those living incomes, we need universal basic services. We need universal basic services. Such as? Proper childcare, proper healthcare. We have the NHS is not working all right the NHS is failing badly and the money that should be going into it isn't going into it and whatever injections of money that goes into it goes to middle management all right we need a restructured NHS so that the original vision of a national health service can be rescued. We need money going into our food system. And not just one food system, we need food systems. We need to develop what we call territorial or localized um, food systems where every neighborhood or every region um has access to food direct from farmers where they can trade um in solidarity in a just and fair, fair way with other communities and countries where they can access food that cannot be produced here we need more markets we need proper accessible storage right our our food processing most of our food processing happens elsewhere most of our fruit comes from the eu and if you actually follow a lot of those chains right a lot of that food in the eu is coming from africa and elsewhere
0: which has a massive impact on the climate doesn't it i mean it and and, exactly and we're so you know we have a responsibility to grow here because our climate is still, well, I mean, not this summer and not going forward, but like relatively, as you say, compared to the global South, we can still grow here. Um, But that comes to almost a collective view of the world, rather this sectioning off that we've done by, you know, geopolitics, which is another issue altogether. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot to be, to be done there. Um, And, I mean, I completely see all of those because I I look very deeply into the systems. You know, I I really think that we're in a revolution. And I think that everything that we know as life on Earth right now needs to be redesigned from education, as you're saying, to... I mean, even the, the... the met police i went on a women's equality march a, a few months ago and one of the amazing amazing black women who um my her name unfortunately escapes me but who spoke at the at the rally was talking was standing in front of the met police building and shouting uh, with a you know with a microphone and saying that the met police is a failed experiment it's only a 200 year old institution and it's been it was designed to do so many beautiful, wonderful things, and it has it. And I think the thing that I get a lot of hope from is when I think about these things were designed as experiments. For example, the NHS, and therefore we can look at them and say they need to be redesigned. But of course, the you know there's just so many people who, and let's just say it, a lot of men who you know are through toxic masculinity find it really difficult to just say that something is failing and something is broken and something needs to change because it seems like a personal and all of the the interviews that I'm doing they seem to be coming back to this sort of central theme that like we need to create containers for people in in power to feel comfortable and psychologically safe to say things aren't working and to change them is that Something that you feel too? The
1: thing is, so many of our systems are not working, right? The toxic ones, the harmful ones are. So the mm-hmm. patriarchy is digging in. Um, you know, we just have to look at what's happening in the US where we're seeing that withdrawal of women's rights. Um, there's racism And you know, that this big drive to create more poor people and turn in a blind eye to the plight of impoverished people. And we just need an overhaul, we need new ideas, even if they're drawn on old ideas. But we need, you know, fresh thinking, we need fresh thinking in these these spaces and healing. I always come back Mm. to healing because we're all traumatized. Even some of those people who have power now are traumatized from their very existence. I mean, how can any politician right now go to bed knowing how many millions of people right here I'll go in hungry,
0: one of my favorite quotes at the moment in the fight for equality is um aren't you glad that women want equality, not revenge <laughs> um, and I know that this is an interesting it's an interesting point to discuss actually because I don't see it talked about openly but I know it's talked about in closed rooms which is so a bit of crazy background about me I have revolution in my blood because um, this is I feel like I'm outing myself here because I haven't spoken about this before but my granddad was actually general of the Nicaraguan army during the civil war in Nicaragua um, and he basically was very involved in a revolution that happened there and Part of the reason why I created warrior women was because you know warriors as an as an idea is almost quite a masculine um it's there mm. actually were historically a lot of women warriors, and women were often the ones that went to war and fought but I think when we think about a warrior, if we shut our eyes often it's kind of this male image, but Warriors are people who are really going into battle and and really fighting. They're not on the sidelines. They're not witnessing. They're really in the thick of it. And I think increasingly people are feeling very much like when do we and I I don't I'm really cautious here about, you know, I'm not inciting violence in any way. I'm talking about a feeling I'm talking about a feeling of uprising and saying mm. you know we're, that kind of line we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore that doesn't mean we're bashing down windows or screaming but it's it's interesting if you think about it in the context of women as well you know women being like well you know be good girls don't get angry and um I don't really feel that maybe because of my background I kind of I'm willing to stand up and pick up my arrow as it were but when you said I feel like we need a definition for what we mean by revolution you know what do we mean what does it what would it look like for us to revolt to have to take back power to have influence Like, what is that what is that that you feel that looks like and how do we how do we do that in a way which is you know feminine you know kind and and respectful but has force and power to it and i know that's a huge question to ask and i guess i'm just Mm. i'm not necessarily even expecting you to be able to answer it. i'm just trying to get in my own mind what what i'm sensing that we need more of but not knowing what the answer to that might be does that make you feel anything or think anything when i'm saying that
1: Mm, yeah i and the immediate thing that comes to mind is another quote by Audre Lorde. Oh, my God, I'm
0: obsessed with Audre Lorde. I'm obsessed
1: with... uh, The Masters, too, will never dismantle the Masters' house. All right? And, you know, having that Caribbean background... I literally have to tell you,
0: I've literally got that by my toilet, that book, that poem by my toilet, and I read it regularly because it's just... Oh, sorry, I'm having an Audre Lord
1: moment. But
0: Erotics <laughs> of Power is also one of the most powerful yeah. poems I've ever, ever heard.
1: Yeah, no, she wrote from her experience of, of being a Caribbean woman, of being a lesbian woman um, and a lesbian Black woman and that intersectionality. Um, and it is about understanding that those intersecting marginalizations and oppressions? And how do we create an ecosystem that isn't that? I would say, we need to be organizing. We need to have those systems ready because as far as I could see it, everything is falling apart. You know, we're in the midst of multiple crises, so right now, our government is falling apart. That system of government is falling apart. Globally, we're in an economic crisis. We're in a food crisis. Um, we're in an energy crisis. We're in a biodiversity crisis. We're in a climate crisis. And it's only through our collective action and collective visioning that um that we're going to have some sort of effective change we just need to be ready all Right, it's not enough to just tear down walls all Right, we need to have in place what we need to replace and i think that's why i'm i'm a modeler i'm a doer i'm an actionist i I am creating the change that I want to see mm. rather than just talking about it,
0: but you know you're doing something which i I once spoke to somebody, and it was I love when you were talking about um some of the people that you'd met in the past, and I think some of the magic in my life, and it sounds like your too yours too is. You sit opposite a person you've sort of never spoken to before, and you have a conversation, and that conversation becomes a fork in your life, right? It becomes a moment that changes things. And I've had a few of those in my life. And one gift I'd love to give to you is I once had a conversation with a gentleman called Robert Barnard Weston, and he is his nickname is the grandfather of sustainability. He was one of one of the original people who created corporate social responsibility. And I was having a phone conversation with him and he said, well, you know, the thing about you, Carla, is you step forward first. And then once you've stepped forward, you open the door for others. And it really hit me. Mm. Um, And I think the thing that I'm hearing when I speak to you is that there's sort of this duality that warrior women need, which is pushing the door, right? Which is why you want things like London Food Board and, and you're kind of in those rooms and you're saying, we need to change. This is why we need to change. But we wouldn't be doing that if we didn't think that that there is a chance that that door will open at some point, that it will have to be opened in some way, even if it's just a, a, a little, cre- you know, creak and the light comes through. And I shared on LinkedIn last week a, I mean, I don't know, I find my my motivation just by things that I guess I read and it said, um, is your activism serving you more than it is other people? So there are people who are this sort of pushing open doors and they're talking about how we they need to the change and they're getting, you know, kind of more and more high profile from it. And that's important work, but sometimes it it re, it doesn't look to what's behind the door, which is to say, okay, when I get into a position where people are listening, when they're really listening... I better be sure that I know what I want to say when that happens. And what that means is that you have to be an actionist and a solutionist, right? And that's incredibly hard. Yeah. But it's bloody exciting. <laughs>
1: I yeah, you know. It is.
0: But it's it's really that duality, right? It's like I'm a wonder of both those kind of worlds and obviously it's somebody who is highly collaborative and who is a wonder of worlds and is incredibly curious because you can never have those all those situations yourself Um, you have to be able to bring them together and you know we do that in different ways for me it's just about saying well you need to speak to Dee or you need to speak to Cressy It's, it's being that connector to people but maybe for you because of your personal experience um it's more it's more lived there, i feel like we could talk for literally days on end and you've given me actually loads of ideas about how i can shift worry women more into that solutionist part before we before we go i'd love to just hear from you about any other women who you think are doing great work in this space and self identifying women that you'd like to amplify and, and tell us to kind of read about their solutions and share those solutions and open doors for them?
1: Ooh, there, there's so many women in this space. For me, I take counsel from young young people. I listen to young people. And I think I have a duty and a responsibility to young people. And there's... Fazana Khan, who's behind Healing Justice, who looks at things from a disability justice viewpoint. Josina and Sam, who are, you know, sort of part of the collective Land in Our Names, also known as, as Lion. And I will include Marcus. In, in there um, as a queer person. There's the young women and non-binary people that I'm working with um, right now to build the food sovereignty movement. Um, Joe Kamal and um, Valerie Goods, I mean, there's so many people. Pauline Shakespeare, um, Paulette Henry. Um, I'm, I meet so many people, and you know, who are just are doing doing amazing work in their spaces. And I think I'm becoming a bit of a weaver and trying to weave people together doing um, similar work. Mm. But, yeah.
0: Thank you so much for, you know, everything that you're doing and for this time that you've given us today to hear about your experiences and to share your knowledge with us. I've really, really,
1: really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Carla. And I mean, there's so, so, so much more, so much more. I think I just touched on my my experiences and I'm seeing now how all my life experiences are part of the work that I'm doing so from experiencing sexual violence and how that impacts on um, food security and yeah there's so much more but thank, thank you thank you for having me on And hopefully we we can do this again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to spending more time with you and getting to know each other better.
1: Look forward to that.
0: I'm Carla. You've been listening to Warrior Women, the podcast by the Warrior Women Network, brought to you by Zinc VC and produced by Birdline Media.